sports are really important vehicles for relationships. We have purpose. We have a why. We bring people together. We connect. I feel like God is our greatest supporter and our greatest coach. Welcome to Rabbi on the Sidelines. This is Rabbi Erez Sherman from Sinai Temple in Los Angeles, where we speak about the intersection of sports and faith. This week, we are joined not by an up-and-coming rising star, but by the star himself, Jason Benetti from Fox Sports and ESPN, the voice of college football, of college basketball, graduate of the Newhouse School of Communications of Syracuse University, and the announcer of the Chicago White Sox. Jason Benetti, it's great to have you on Rabbi on the Sidelines. Hello, sir. How are you? It's been a long time, as we were just talking about, uh, probably about 17 years since we went to that game with Jason Horowitz of Westwood One Radio at Yankee Stadium, the old Yankee Stadium. Yeah, it was. It was a long time ago. I, you know, it's funny. We're, uh, we're talking at a time that is very interesting to mention Jason Horowitz's name because he, he's the studio host for Westwood One Radio's coverage of the NCAA tournament. But the way the network situation works, uh, we're not allowed to acknowledge the studio host. Like we're just oh, no. not allowed to say it because there's also a simultaneous broadcast with a different studio host happening at the same time. So I can't say hello to my college roommate while we are on the air, which is weird to me. Well, the rabbi acknowledged the Jason and Jason Squared uh, broadcast team, which I got to know many years ago uh, when you guys were hanging around my hometown in Syracuse. So let's start with my hometown because huge news out of Syracuse, New York this past few weeks, Coach Jim Beheim. So you were the director of uh, really the sports radio, I believe with WAR 88.3 growing up. And uh, tell me your, not relationship, but how you, what you learn from the legend of Coach Beheim as being a broadcaster, what to ask and sometimes what not to ask. Yeah, it's funny, you know, you grow up at Syracuse University as a journalist and you learn very quickly about what types of questions actually work. The first one that doesn't is, have you thought about playing man to man? That's not <laughs> ideal when you're talking to Jim Beheim. Uh, here's the thing, Jim Beheim. well, he, he also taught me not to ask compound questions or questions that are too long or questions that aren't pointed because he was so good at finding the gap, finding the interstitial, finding the thing that he could jump in on and say, well, I wouldn't say exactly that, you know? So I learned very quickly, like be precise around Jim Beheim. And I think that's a valuable lesson. I mean, I know things at the end were not as peachy as when they won the NCAA tournament 20 years ago, as we're sitting here now. But he was always great with me. He demanded things of people, which I appreciate. Uh, sometimes he went a little bit farther than other people would, but like that's life, that's what happens. He was a dedicated person to the university in so many ways and to his players. The way he defended Jerry McNamara when I was in school. Uh, I was there, I was at that tournament. Were you really, you were at, you were at the garden? We wouldn't have won one game, my friend. <laughs> that's right, that's right, with a word or two interspersed. Uh, that was he, my religious interpretation. That's right. That's right. I love it. I love it. Uh, but I, I think he's I think he's a wonderful coach. That 2003 run, you know, I mean, that 2003 run it was so great for the city and was so valuable for so many people and made so many memories for me and my friends in college. And uh, I will always appreciate it. 
And so let's go to March Madness this year. You were in uh, Des Moines, Iowa, doing some games. And so talk about that pointed discussion. You have a game, let's say, like, you know, Princeton, Arizona. You have a game like FDU um, over Purdue. When you're Andy Katz or when you're Jason Bonetti and you have that moment to ask one of these guys, like, in that moment, you know, what was that like? What is the question that comes to your mind? Is it preparation? I read that actually you never prepare. Not that you don't prepare, but that you don't write a scripted thing. How do you balance preparation within the moment? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, it goes back to Syracuse. Like we all learned how to build boards, spotting boards at Syracuse University. What goes on a good spotting board? What prepares you for the game? And over time, I have realized that that is step one. Step two is taking the context of what you learned from the preparation and applying it to that game. Right. So I went to law school and the place where law school really helped me is you learn the rule. So you have to memorize the rule and understand the rule, the statute, whatever it is. But in order to get an A on the test, you have to apply it to a fact pattern that the teacher creates. Right. So it's not only I know the rule. Well, how does it to apply here? Like, how do you put that on this situation? So I have my board. But over the course of time, I have gone less from, hey, I need to tell you this story about this moment, about this board. How does it go to this game? Because this is the one time that Arkansas and Kansas are going to play in 2023 in the round of 32. This is the one moment of that. So when we had Ricky Council, the fourth, come over, uh, the Arkansas star from that game on Saturday, the first thing I asked him was something about his head coach having his shirt off. Yeah, like that. <laughs> in that moment, Eric Musselman just ripped his shirt off. And it was like, your coach has his shirt off. What's the deal? Was basically uh -huh. some version of the question because that's what was happening right then. It wasn't, well, you know, your brothers are named Ricky as well. What does that mean to you? It's what am I seeing on the person's face? This is a human connection, right? And this is, this is where sports becomes more global to me is we're there for the intensity of the human reaction. I was in Worcester in 2005 when Syracuse lost to Vermont. Oh, please, and Jason, I, please, please. I know, no, 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 I know, I know, I know. Lauren Canaster, our mutual friend, has still <laughs> not watched the game back. Like he still has not watched TJ Sorrentine do what he did. Yeah. I know, I hate, I hate bringing up the names because it like drives me insane. But I do know that feeling that I had inside that I was never going to broadcast with my friends again. I was mm. never going to have that moment where I'm in charge of this radio station again. It's all over in an instant. That has made me a better announcer because mm. I understand the visceral human relationship with the abrupt stopping point that sports provides so often. So I'm new in the broadcast world in terms of speaking to an audience that I can't see, right? When I'm speaking from a pulpit, I see the reactions. I understand. I think about the people that are going to walk into a sanctuary. But as you say in an interview that you're speaking to an invisible audience, who are you thinking about speaking to and what goals do you want to get across to either the people that are watching or maybe the people that aren't watching that might tune in tomorrow? Yeah, it's uh, it was really hard when I was in the minors sometimes and I do games alone yes. because I, I legitimately would put pictures of friends of mine up on an iPad <laughs> and I would turn and I would talk to them while I was doing the game alone. But now I'm really feeding off the energy of my analysts. I'm mm -hmm. feeding off of the reaction of my analyst. I mean, we are an audience of one for each other is the way I would put it. 
And so I am, I need to have that human connection of, oh, they're reacting to that. Oh, what I just said kind of made them smirk a little bit. Did I say it wrong? There, there's, there's one person representing the whole audience. And I think it's really interesting because we have to have a feel for a grander scale of person, but we're assuming that the person next to us is representative enough. That's hilarious that you say that because one of those people who are perhaps representative of the other people are this guy. Tell me what you think about what your partner said. And this is my great friend, the true giant among us, a brilliant genius, one who's able to create beauty, beauty out of darkness. And your name? It's Jason Still. Okay, and so I'm Bill, and we're in California. He's really representative of everybody watching, right? Bill Walton, tell us about those experiences from the booth uh, in the basketball and then visiting you in Chicago or in L.A. as the White Sox visited the Angels. He is the most wonderful, vivid friend that a person could ever ask for. His heart, after everything he's been through, I mean, he's overcome a stutter. He's had really bad foot problems. His back issues were tremendously um, debilitating for him. And he is still a marvelous, glorious soul that's just bursting with energy. And I'm starting to talk like him, uh, I realize. But the last five weeks, you know, five of the last eight weeks or so, I've been out in San Diego at his house doing an alternate stream on the NBA app. And he wouldn't let me stay at a hotel. Like there's a guest room there that I had to stay in because hospitality is important to him and his friends are important to him. And I cannot tell you the it is a joy of my life to get to say that I am a friend of Bill Walton's because the way he navigates life, the way he treats people, the way he sees beauty in everything is resounding and just surrounds him as an aura. And I strive to be like that. So one more ordinary question before we get into the real details of the depth of who you are as a person. Bill Walton, your friend, Bruin, as we're sitting out here down the street from Pauley Pavilion, are the Bruins going to make it? I really liked them when they were full complimented. Uh, the injuries scare me. Mm -hmm. Gonzaga and Drew Timmy scare me yeah. in the next round. Uh, he played out of his mind against TCU. I do think Mick Cronin is a phenomenal basketball okay. coach. Uh, and he's a phenomenal leader, too. I mean, just his understanding of how to get uh, energy and get human emotion out of people and trigger motivation and do it without being demeaning. I mean, he is, I covered him a lot when he was at Cincinnati. I was doing yep. the American conference. And I think Mick Cronin is a top five coach in the country. I really do. Actually, I think he's jumping higher on the sidelines than Walton uh, dunks right now. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty insane to watch as I take my kids to Pauley Pavilion often. Um, so Interesting that you spoke about Bill Walton's challenges, specifically the physical challenges, when you yourself are somebody who said you used to hide behind the radio in order for people not to see of who perhaps you were in the depths of your soul. Um, and I didn't know this until I really did some research about you, not the cerebral palsy aspect, but how you entered into broadcasting. So this is a little clip of uh, how you entered um, from the tuba into the broadcast booth. Nettie's band director had the idea to put him behind a microphone to call the band's routines. That's how Jason Benetti became an announcer. They gave me a chance to sit behind a thing that, that I had no idea that I was gonna love. Tim Anderson drills it to center. 
Smith back at the warning track. It is up and clanging off and back in. The fact that you chose that tuba of the 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 confidence that you had, right? That I can do this. Where did that come from as a young boy who spent often a lot of times in hospitals that said, I'm just going to be like everybody else? I think it was born out of a lack of confidence, oddly enough. Hmm. Uh, I think that because it's not that I knew I could drag the tuba around and I ended up needing like help to bring it home or like leave it at school. And there were always, there were always bureaucratic hurdles like uh, pragmatic hurdles to climb. I had a tuba for at school and one for at home. And like, sometimes I would take it mm -hmm. home over winter break or whatever it was. I, I just wanted people to know that I could do the biggest thing because then everything else wasn't a question anymore. Like if I played the French horn, it'd be like, oh, well, he can carry the French horn, but could he really carry a tuba, right? Like it's basically like saying, well, you know, he can eat a cheeseburger, but could he eat this entire dinosaur? Probably not. Like I thought people were saying that about me, which like people didn't care that much, right? But I cared enough that I wanted people to not ask any questions about what my abilities were. So I picked the tuba, I guarantee you in part because it was the largest one. And I simply just either wanted the challenge or wanted to say that I could do the thing that you know, assumedly I couldn't. And if that band teacher did not put you behind the booth, where would you be today? I have no idea. I'd, I would, uh, I would be like a crossword creator or something like that. I, you know, in my spare time, I, maybe I'd be a teacher. Uh, but I, you know, it's, I, I wouldn't, I probably wouldn't be a teacher because I, I, I promise you, if I didn't have that experience behind a microphone, mm -hmm. I wouldn't have had the confidence that I have to navigate the world. Because my ability to navigate the world is born out of my ability to communicate. And I trust myself to communicate because I'm doing it at a medium that I didn't trust myself to do before. So it was um, it was like the shallow end of the pool to start because I was doing radio and nobody could see me. And then suddenly I would get into TV and it just sort of happened that way. I mean, you know, our, our mutual friend Lauren said in a piece to, to Peter Sagel, uh, the wonderful NPR host and host of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. He said it was basically miserable to go out to do TV standups with me when we were in college because it would take me like 45 minutes to make it perfect because I was so worried about everything around it, not just how I look, but like what I was saying. And it was all, if it's not exactly right, I'm going to implode. And that's that's just no way to live. And so you took transforming or transitioning from radio to TV, and now you really become an advocate. As you know a little bit about my story, I was a sibling of a uh, young person with disabilities, and I was the advocate, but you yourself are the advocate. And one of those things that I found were these awkward moments, aspects that you've done that really just are both humorous and truly deep and amazing. This is one of them, and I want to maybe share, you can share about why you decided to do this. Hi, I'm Jason Benetti, your friendly Chicago TV sports announcer with Awkward Moments. Brought to you by the Cerebral Palsy Foundation. Think about how many things we overlook in life. Like, when you go down a street, 99% of what you see, you don't remember. 
Well, when you have cerebral palsy, you're part of the 1% that people do remember. I was walking down the street the other day, and as I passed this woman, she looked down at my legs as though they were actually going to fall off my body. So when she caught me catching her, her eyes darted up and away like she'd been looking at the power lines. Did you write the content? Why did you decide to do this? Who is that audience that you want to make a, a difference for? I think the audience is actually everybody. It's like the people who've experienced what I've experienced in terms of these you, that's Some of you out there in the crowd felt uh, different. Oh, more of me. I want less of me personally. Uh, <laughs> There are the there are these repetitious experiences, I think, and and you know, being uh, somebody who's observed it, it's happened to me or that person a million times, and it's happening by virtue of this one person out in the wild, the first time, right? They've never done it before, at least to this person, right? They've never reacted in this way to that specific person before, but it's happened to me a million times. It's happened to a person in a wheelchair a million times, but. It's not really a fault thing, right? I think most people aren't trying to be malicious. They're mm -hmm. simply going with what their brains tell them the uh, the column you fall into is. And that's, I'm, I'm just trying to say that's not always true. Like just use your brain a little more and push yourself to say, well, maybe what I'm seeing is not the only thing that I'm seeing. But I, I did not write the copy myself at all. Uh, Richard Ellenson was running the Cerebral Palsy Foundation at the time. Uh, he was one of the people involved in the slogan, and I think he was the creator of It's Not TV, It's HBO. Uh, he was an ad rep, and he's a super creative guy. We met, uh, I was actually visiting Horowitz. We met at the Smith in Columbus Circle uh, in New York City, and we just hit it off. And we came up with this campaign, Richard and I sort of plunged into the idea together and we co-wrote them and he found an animator that did them. And it's one of the joys of my life to get to do it because mm -hmm. it's a little bit like curb for disabilities. Yeah. So you talk about the awkward moments, but maybe share a few of those moments when people see you and say, you're Jason Benetti. And you know what? You inspired my child. You inspired me as a parent. You inspired my friend to take that tuba and that, uh, play that tuba loud and proud. Yeah, uh, the, it is It is really uh, pretty emotional for me actually to navigate the world and have people say that I matter in that way. You know, I, I just had somebody in a wheelchair come up to me in Des Moines and just be so kind about my work. And, I, you know, I'm, what I, the story I'm about to tell you is, uh, pretty emotional for me, uh, but it, it has nothing really to do with disability. I think it's just the universality of being somebody who is fortunate enough to be on television and have an impact on people's lives. But I was, I was doing a Zoom call with a class, and uh, this student raised his hand and said, uh, I just want you to know that you being the White Sox announcer has been really, really important to me and my family. And we watch all the time together. And, uh, you know, we just lost my mom. Mm. And uh, it's it's uh, your calls really, you know, essentially brought our family together. And they're memories that we'll always have of watching the game with mom. And, um, you know, the person then wrote me about a couple days later and said, you know, I... I, uh, I didn't want to say this in the large group, but 
my my mom took her own life oh, and uh talking about it i did he's i didn't expect to talk about it but i did and uh i appreciate you listening and uh, i've stayed in touch with him a little bit but um it's really hard to wrap my mind around being the type of person who can have that level of an impact Mm-hmm. And I think it's the beauty of sports in a major, yes. major way. But I, uh, you know, it took me, it took me about a month to really comprehend that, you know, that somebody, and I, I know you have people telling you things a lot that are very deep and very important to them. And, and I have never really had that experience in that sort of visceral way by proxy, but it was extraordinarily touching and it also made me realize that that sometimes you know when you're when you're just a sports guy right there there was a little self-loathing for me when i was younger because i had friends who were in local government or writing for the atlantic or doing things that were very um civically motivating and motivated and i was doing minor league baseball and i have come to realize that over the course of time um fun becomes important yes. and and having the ability to create a smile and having memories um is a really important thing to the soul as well and fun doesn't really get built into your day you have to come upon it now and and i'm happy to be that stopping point for people actually i'll share something a teaching from our tradition in hebrew it said mitzvah gadola liot besimcha tamid which means in english it is a commandment to always find joy at any time. And where we find that joy is often with you. I can tell you that I am get very proud when I tell my children, I know that guy. And not just your disability, but your ability to bring the game, um, to hear what you're seeing and relaying it to us as well. And in fact, this story that we shared as well, just a couple of months ago, when I was talking to somebody who was living their last few days of their life and realizing that your partner um, in the Chicago White Sox booth made a difference on this man and being able to connect that family with him. Uh, to me, that's where the F word of faith really comes in in bonding these uh, these two ideas. So is there any faith in sports, whether you see on the field, in the booth, or in this intersection that we're speaking about here? You know, it's interesting. Um, where, where I think faith intersects in a way that is uh the road less traveled is a little bit in the pushback to advanced statistics uh and and this might be a little bit of an end around here it might be a little bit of a flea flicker a play that takes a little while to develop but i would say this that um everybody's afraid of just being a number of having their feet Mm -hmm. in grooves and just moving forward in the world with a corporate overlord telling them what to do because they feel as though that their uh, fate or their own ability to do something or their own destiny shouldn't be decided by something man-made, I think. I think there's a little bit of that built in the, hey, don't just tell me that I'm just a number. Don't tell me this guy's WOBA. I mean, I've de- I did ESPN StatCast shows for years and I love them and I love the data. And I think it tells us so much about the human condition and who's good at what specifically defensively. They are marvelous. And I use them in a big way in my research. But I would say fans don't want to be overwhelmed with it in part because 
they want to be the decider or they want some higher power rather than numbers decide what they're going to do. So I, I believe the the inability for people to comprehend themselves as just a number, as I as an only child very much struggle with, you know, like I have to be somebody who gets attention, right? Because I'm an only <laughs> child. But the 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 end run of it, I think, in baseball is that we see people saying, I want to push back a little bit at that methodology because i want to believe that people are capable of something beyond what the numbers suggest of them mm -hmm. and that's why my personal intersection is a little bit funky with the numbers because if you put over my head the percentage chance that i was going to be a tv play-by-play -play announcer as i was walking into your house in syracuse when we first knew each other it would have been as close to zero as something to get could get without being zero, right? Mm -hmm. It just, just for sheer numbers of it, right? Like just being a collegiate sports announcer, the number is basically zero. Mm -hmm. And then you walk like I walk, have an eye that drifts, it's gonna come real close to zero. Mm -hmm. And I, so I know the numbers teach you a lot about players, but I also want to feel like there's something beyond that for me. And so you gave a beautiful speech at the Lincoln Memorial uh, Presidential Library a couple of uh, months ago. If you haven't seen this, I suggest everybody watch the entire hour, including the Q&A, which was uh, really uh, entertaining. Um, but this is what you said about really not just being a number, but uh, emphasizing the differences that, in fact, bring us together. Uh, there's something about you you didn't like. Something about one of your kids they didn't like. There's something wrong or weird or less than or bizarre or whatever and I sat behind a microphone doing radio and I suddenly felt like I could do something productive. So you said if the work's good they'll hire you. Take that to the uh, outside of what you're doing into our own life. How do we know when our work is good and does it have to only come when we hit the big stage? Uh, no, and it's it's not um, it's not necessarily about comparing yourself to everybody else because that's a value judgment. It's diving into whatever craft you do, and that can be mentoring people. It can be being a loving parent. It can be being a caregiver for somebody who is struggling with health issues. It can be being a, a luge participant. Whatever it is. You dive into what's been done before and you learn about the craft of that and you throw yourself at it and you do things that are novel. That is really where I have started to comprehend my worth is by, you know, I, if you put on three seconds of an announcer, I could tell you who it is. Mm -hmm walk around doing impressions of like Jim Rome and I still do Sean McDonough delighted to be with you you know that sort of thing or keep it going Bill Raftery and the kiss yeah Bill, Bill Raftery is a tough one for me because it's just a little it's like you know you squeeze it a little uh but uh the sports center guy right like sports center brought to you by Red Bull that guy right like I've started to do that I you have a Dick Vitale for us? I don't actually. Oh. I, I I tend to do impressions of people who people don't do impressions of. Oh, yes, I think it yes. makes it easier for me because there's not like there's not like nine thousand people lining up to do a Sean McDonough impression. 
uh, <laughs> so it doesn't get compared as much. But I, I became a student sonically of people. And so I can tell you within three seconds who's doing the game. Does that really apply to life? No, but I feel really good about my ability to dive into a craft and become, quote, good at it. Like throw, I'm proud idea. to say that I have the same hobby as Jason Benetti. <laughs> That's nice, nice, right? I mean, but you can tell if you watch enough sports, you start to hear voices yeah. and you're like, oh, I know for sure that's Nick Ba. Oh, that's definitely Jimmy Dykes doing the game. Uh -huh. I mean, we, we used to have people come over at midnight to watch the Mountain West Big Monday game. We all picked teams and like we had, we had all these rules about Mountain West Monday. It was great fun. But we also were listening very closely to Dave Pash and Jimmy Dykes. Yeah. Yep. Like we just, we knew, we knew who was doing every game. And so you've done everything. You've basically reached the top of this career at such a young age. What do you want to, where do you see yourself five years, both in the booth, but also outside of the booth in helping really bringing a little more gentleness to this sometimes uh, difficult world? Uh People are going to think I'm ridiculous, but I would I, I I watched a lot of SNL as a kid, like a lot of Saturday Night Live. And uh, I would love to, like, write a show at some point. Ken Levine has become a good friend of mine. Uh, you know, Ken wrote for Cheers, one of the funniest people. I'm my ever. original guest and Sinai Temple member, the best. Ken is a fantastic human being. I love Ken Levine. And I, you know. I have always wanted to, over the last 10, 15 years, to write something, pitch something, like do a show. Uh, that has always, uh, over the last 15 years, appealed to me uh, and, a, and a friend of mine. So, you know, that that's something that I would like to do. I, I have a friend uh, who I went to college with who is trying to convince me that, like, after a White Sox game one day on the road at like midnight, I should just go kick the tires on 10 minutes of stand up just to feel the nerves, just to see how bad I would be at it. Right. But I have always loved performance. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know it until I really got into it deeply. But nobody really, you know, Marley Matlin has had a great career. RJ Mitty on Breaking Bad did a phenomenal turn as Walt Jr. But uh you know, people don't write a whole lot and Micah Fowler on speechless, but people don't write a whole lot of parts for people right. with disabilities. Right. They right. just don't like, I, I walk differently than people. So it's not like somebody's going to cast me in a show and it's not like I have acting chops either. Right. Mm -hmm. But I do love being around great performers. I do love watching the voice because I do think the idea of people hearing something sonically and saying, I want that is basically what my career has been founded on. So I that appeals to me. All of that appeals to me. Uh, just back to the Ken Levine thing for one second. Obviously, you shared the booth at Syracuse Chiefs, as you probably know that. Um, and when I met Ken through my rabbinic work here at Sinai Temple, we actually realized that we were neighbors when I was like basically a two-year-old. He lived three houses away on Kimber Road. No way, um, really? Yeah. So. That's amazing. And he was connected through Dave Cohen, my little league coach, who was the broadcaster of the New York Yankees and MSG back in the 90s. Coney Island, Dave Cohen was your little league coach. Yeah. Coney Island, Dave is one of my one of my one of one of the best. That's awesome. <laughs> He's been great to me. Dave, Dave's amazing. And so when you I want to go back to the Chiefs for a second, because and then I want to conclude with one last question. You're in the Chiefs broadcast booth by yourself, right? Putting up pictures of your friends. 
what did that lonely experience teach you um, to not just talk to yourself, but like how you have a monologue for three hours and give me advice as a rabbi of, I call it sacred performance, standing on a stage and giving a message of faith and inspiration. How do I take your booth and put it into my booth? Wow, that is a whale of a question. I love that question. Um, my first year, I'm going to sort of talk through my answer. Uh, my first year doing independent minor league baseball in 2005 with the Windy City Thunderbolts, not far from Chicago, I was talking about Gatorade. I had had a Gatorade that was uh, Gatorade Fruit Punch plus Berry. And I did half an inning about why Berry just isn't included in Fruit Punch. Like it's a fruit that should be part of the punch. Right. <laughs> and I had multiple people say, I don't know what in the world you were talking about, but it was funny. And then a couple of years later, they at Frederick, Maryland, they had left a big bottle of hand sanitizer in the booth for some reason. So I had a partner at the time and he and I started talking about like, do they think that we're messy? Like what, you know, that sort of thing. That's kind of the easy way. But it became 11 to one. And I started to read the ingredients of <laughs> the hand sanitizer on the air. Like I was way ready for 2020 well in advance. <laughs> so I was reading the ingredients of the hand sanitizer and I got a bunch of notes from people like, oh, that was hilarious, isn't it? Uh, the, my, if eventually I have realized that as long as you trust yourself to find the novelty in situations, you can connect with an audience. Mm -hmm. But there's another piece for you that I think comes from sports casting as well. I love to have fun in an 11 to one game. But these moments, especially in the NCAA tournament or in the playoffs of Major League Baseball or in the NBA postseason or whatever it is, these moments are moments that people are going to watch with their children for a long time and their grandchildren for a long time. In Syracuse, I did a Christian Brothers Academy game with Dale Drypolcher, who was on Time Warner for a number of years, one of the nicest people I've ever, ever met, a tremendous partner. We talked pretty glowingly about a kid who had a punt return for a touchdown for CBA in the sectional finals at the Carrier Dome. And we, you know, he deserved it. He wrote us a note to thank us and said, it's so great to watch that call and have you guys talk the way you did about me. I'm so honored, I'm so grateful. So knowing that there's value in humor and knowing that there's value in novelty is one thing, but also having the gravitas to care that people are gonna play this moment back. It's almost like mm -hmm. being a parent to people over and over and over and over again, because you right. never know what thing people are going to remember. Yes. And so you have to have the understanding that every moment is both possibly humorous, but also gravely important because it can be, if you're doing your job right, no matter how you're communicating, it can be a turning point of inspiration for the mm -hmm. person listening. And so knowing that you have that responsibility shouldn't chill the humor, but it should say, I need to be focused at all times to your brain. I love that. Those thoughts go through my mind every day, whether we're at a funeral, at a bar mitzvah, at a wedding, or even through the hallway. And this idea of living life while also um, breathing inspiration and, uh, and faith as well. Uh, where will we be this weekend so we can catch you? I'm going to be, be on a White Sox spring training game on 
today. On Thursday, we got a White Sox game on Thursday. And then actually, I am going on vacation for four days before the White Sox season starts. Amazing. Well, it is well-deserved. And Jason, it's uh, been a long time coming. And I'm just very grateful for uh, this moment to have really deep conversation outside of the booth and from heart to soul. Uh, Jason Benetti, ESPN, Fox Sports, Newhouse School of Communications, and Jason, as we like to say in our tradition, a mensch, just simply a great, good guy. Jason, it's great to see you on Rabbi on the Sidelines. Thank you so much. And can I say before I go, uh, you know, by virtue of my job, I do a bunch of interviews, and this has been so joyous because your questions are about life, and that's what we're doing this for. So I... I would tell anybody that you ask to come on this show to do it because they might actually learn something about themselves too. It's very cool. This was great fun. Thank you, Jason. Well, uh, see you out. Uh, see you in LA, and uh, looking forward to speaking soon. Sounds good.